The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. A scripture reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 22, beginning at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover meal for us, that we may eat it. They asked him, Where do you want us to make preparations for it? Listen, he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters, and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs already furnished. Make preparations for us there. Today, as Jonah already mentioned, following this service, a task force <clears throat> of dedicated church members will offer a presentation describing the church's beautiful and thoughtful plans for renovating the Kirkland Chapel, a beloved worship space here at Fifth Avenue Church, one that will turn 100 years old in 2025. As we begin this work, I have been thinking about the depth and breadth of Scripture's witness, especially when it comes to the many places and spaces where the Bible describes people engaged in worship. In the good book, people worship out of doors. Picture a solitary figure like Elijah praying in the desert. Or if you prefer a fresh air concert venue, picture a green hillside where 5,000 people have, have spread out their blankets and are listening to Jesus preach. In the good book, in the story of Exodus, people without a home, wander through a vast wilderness. And in this desolate place, they worship in a tent, a tent that the Hebrews assemble each night and take down each morning before moving to a new location. In the good book, people worship in urban spaces, urban gathering spaces. The, the apostle Paul preaches a number of different times in places a lot like New York's Washington Square Park. And they also worship in more intimate locations, like the apartment described in the passage that Ashley just read. And yes, in the good book, people construct and decorate sacred buildings, 
shrines, synagogues, temples, and even burial places. They design and build holy places, places where they can gather to pray. The book of Ezekiel is addressed to people who yearn for just such a holy place. Ezekiel, you see, was a prophet during an especially tough time. The Israelites were captives, slaves. They were living in a foreign land, Babylon. These bereft folk had been separated from their homes and their sacred spaces. In fact, one of their saddest communal memories passed down from generation to generation was the moment when they were marched off to Babylon and looking back over their shoulders, the last glimpse they had of home was the site of the temple in Jerusalem burning to the ground. The people to whom Ezekiel preached had lost everything. Living in captivity, they dreamt of returning home to a beloved landscape, to a place where they could rebuild, to a place where they could gather in freedom and worship as they once had. And the prophet Ezekiel lifts up these fragile hopes. He tells people, I've had a vision from God. And in this dream, an angel took me on a tour of a new temple. And there, God made a promise to us. We will be restored. We will go home. And we will have a chance to rebuild our most sacred place. Listen now for God's word to you as it echoes from this ancient vision in a passage found in Ezekiel chapter 41, beginning with the first verse. Then he brought me to the nave and measured the pilasters. On each side, six cubits was the width of the pilasters. The width of the entrance was ten cubits, and the side walls of the entrance were five cubits on either side. He measured the length of the nave, 40 cubits, and its width, 20 cubits. Then he went into the inner room and measured the plasters of the entrance, two cubits, and the width of the entrance, six cubits, and the side walls of the entrance, seven cubits. He measured the depth of the room, 20 cubits, and its width, 20 cubits, beyond the nave. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in a way, Bob Hen, Ezekiel 41 is a shout out to the property committee. It's also a shout out to architects and contractors and artisans who take precise measurements, who cut and fit stone, who construct and, and care for the spaces that surround us when we seek the solace of beloved community and the wisdom of our faith. God bless the property committee. Now, I didn't used to say that. 
When I was younger, I was one of those folk who scoffed at the importance of sacred structures. The church is not a building, I would say. The church is a people, and, and that's true, of course, although it's only part of the truth. The places where people of faith gather are, in fact, expressions of their faith. I'm a church geek, so I love wandering into churches. I love thinking about the ways in which people show their cultural heritage and their, their faith in God through architecture. So whether it be a clean Quaker meeting hall or an ornate Gothic cathedral, our worship spaces rise out of who we believe God is and what we believe God is calling us to do in this world. I've come to appreciate the care that the faithful have given down through the centuries to their many and varied sacred spaces. I love to look at the wood up here in this, this chancel, the ornate arms on these chairs, the thistles etched in these posts, over here, the evocative carving down below me in the front, in the face of the pulpit. I marvel at the craft and care that makes for a place like this, a place where God's people can gather to ponder the mysteries of faith, to engage the sacred arts, to share in service, and song and prayer, to baptize and to marry, to bless and to bury. I cannot tell you really how many times I've stood at the door back there greet, greeting folk and when they've approached me there, they've turned and pointed back at this sanctuary with a tear in their eye saying, this is where we were married 45 years ago, or this is where our daughter was baptized, or this is where I first came to know God. Sacred spaces play an outsized role in our lives. They are drenched with memories. So many powerful memories, right Jeannie? The unique nature of places like this has been the subject of important reflection by sociologists. In their writings, they describe churches and other public gathering spots as third places. A third place, according to Ray Oldenburg, author of the best-selling book, The Great Good Place, is a gathering spot that is neither one's home, the first place, nor the location where one works, the second place. It's not the domestic nest that we return to at the end of the day, nor is it the location where we labor, be it an office or a school, a shop or a factory. Third places are public places, places where people can put aside the pressures of work and sometimes the pressures of home for the pleasures of good company and lively conversation. Around the world, 
Oldenburg describes all sorts of different watering holes as third places. He lists the cafes of Paris, the beer gardens of Munich, the piazzas of Florence, the tea houses of Tokyo, and of course, the pubs of London. Closer to home, Oldenburg taps hair salons, bowling alleys, bookstores, pool halls, and coffee shops as third places. The characteristics of, of a healthy third place, according to Oldenburg, is that they have a regular clientele. You, you can see the same people there again and again, while at the same time, healthy third places are inclusive. Newcomers are welcome. Differences of opinion are tolerated. Folk are offered a seat regardless of their profession or social status. According to these same sociologists, when we do not have or cannot access healthy third places, the fabric of society starts to become threadbare. One of the most worrisome aspects of the pandemic was the way in which people were distanced from third places. Without third places, people become increasingly psychologically isolated. We, we lose touch with ourselves as public beings. On the other hand, writes Oldenburg, at the risk of sounding mystical, nothing contributes as much to one's sense of belonging to a community as much as membership in a third place. In many ways, the, the fictional television show Cheers is the paradigmatic third place, a local haunt where an eclectic collection of people meet regularly away from home and work to share the stuff of life. Sometimes you've got to go where everyone knows your name and they're always glad you came. In the passage from Luke that Ashley read, the disciples are sent out by Jesus to find a furnished room where they can prepare and eat the Passover meal together. They're looking for a third place. They're searching for a room where they can gather, eat, pray, talk, laugh, grieve, break bread, share the cup. The disciples actually grow attached, Scripture tells us, to that third place. Later, in the book of Acts, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the disciples continue to gather in the upper room. In the upper room, they, they strategize, they share resources, they welcome new disciples, and of course, they worship. For 215 years, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church has been a third place, a home away from home, where a diverse collection of people, aren't you glad I didn't say odd, <laughs> thank you, have gathered to converse, share life, break bread, serve others, and of course, worship God. 
this remarkable permanence is not my way of saying that third places, healthy third places, are stagnant or stuck. In recent years, the space occupied by this congregation has expanded in a surprising manner. Aided by technology, we now recognize two campuses, a physical one here at Fifth Avenue and 55th Street, and an online campus that welcomes members of an extended family. I've received letters from folk in Alabama and Australia, from Texas and Taiwan, saying, I'm there with you every Sunday. Fifth Avenue Church is my home. And reading these heartfelt expressions of connection has been an eye-opener for me. I now embrace the wonder and power and possibility of an online third place. And I believe such places can be sacred. In the passage from Ezekiel that I read, the prophet describes a vision in which he's taken on this tour of a new temple. And in this dream, the, the angel is escorting Ezekiel all around the building and pointing out features of its construction, the measurements of the rooms, the size of the pillars. And then the angel brings Ezekiel to a square room, 20 cubits by 20 cubits. This is the most holy place. The angel is pointing, of course, to the holy of holies, the place on earth where God is said to reside. What is it, do you think? that turns bricks and mortar sacred? What makes online worship possibly holy? Implicit in Ezekiel's vision of a new temple is the promise that God will take up residence in its midst. It will be a most holy place because God will be there. I wonder if that description made the hair on the back of Ezekiel's listeners' necks stand up. Two weeks ago, today, we dedicated the new Betsy Jackson boardroom here at Fifth Avenue Church. You can read all about the events and actually see a marvelous video, too, on our website. There were speeches, a portrait was hung on the wall, there were colored pictures done by our children. Werner and I did a few priestly things. We prayed over the room and splashed it with water from our baptismal font. But you know, none of these actions, including the use of holy water, was an incantation a magical act inviting God to show up. God did not suddenly decide to take up residence in our boardroom or in this church. God was already present. God was in the bricks 
and the mortar and the fresh paint that Eric Daniels picked out for that room. God was in the confession and struggle that came with this community discovering the truth about Betsy Jackson. God was in the reckoning that this congregation had in acknowledging that its first pastor owned and later freed an enslaved woman. And God will be, I'm confident, in the conversations that Betsy's portrait will inspire. And God was in the joy that filled our halls two weeks ago. I've been trying to explain this to reporters who've been calling and asking me to talk about the event. They sound incredulous when I use the word joy, but it was real, right? If you were there, it was real. It was joyful. It was actually joyful to come clean, to embrace justice with grace, to see Betsy begin to preside over the boardroom, to gather in love and to say, thank you, God. Thank you for a place where we can do this crucially important work, crucial for us, crucial for the world out there. Please, God, give us the courage and wisdom and honesty and vision to face the next thing you will set before us, to always walk the next righteous path you would have us go down, to be the community that you would have us be. Yes, yes, the church is not a building. It's a people. But God's people gather in places in upper rooms and meadows, in temples and chapels, in buildings, in precious buildings, to confess, to pray, to sing, to extend comfort, to remind each other of Christ's expansive love. And it's in these places, these sacred, memory-filled places, that God dwells with us. Go forth from this holy place, and as you go, have courage. Hold on to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.